Welcome to episode 23 of History of the Marine Corps. The Marines visit the southern states. Last week, the Marines went back to the Bahamas for more supplies. Another successful amphibious landing took place, and Trevitt and his Marines were able to capture two forts. This time, the locals weren't so passive. This week, the United States will see the loss of multiple ships throughout 1778, two of which include the Raleigh and the Alfred. The Marines would also be recruited for the Wheeling Expedition and head to Mississippi to confront British Loyalists. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. A few days after the Randolph was destroyed, and over 300 Marines and sailors, including Captain Biddle, died, the Raleigh and the Alfred headed towards the West Indies. On March 9, 1778, both ships were 400 miles east of St. John's when they spotted two vessels on the horizon. The Alfred was ordered to inspect the two ships, and she and her crew headed northwest to monitor the activity. Captain Elijah Hinman made his way towards the unknown vessels. Initially, the Americans assumed they were merchant ships on a trade route, but by 1000, they spotted something different. The Alfred closed in and when she was five or six miles away, realized that they were British warships. The Alfred and Raleigh advanced, and they began to give chase. When Hinman and the Alfred were two miles away, they raised the American colors and fired multiple shots at the enemy. The English responded the same and fired back at the Americans. The Alfred was a faster ship, and throughout the chaos, she managed to get ahead of the rally by three miles. Captain Thomas Thompson of the rally saw the battle taking place, and he ordered the master of the ship to sail towards the Alfred and attack the enemy from the north. However, the Alfred was overmatched. The leeward ship would cut off the Alfred as she tried to escape enemy fire. Thompson would see this happening from the rally and decided that he would stop pursuing the enemy and ordered the course of the ship changed. Thompson hoped that this move would distract the enemy and entice them to separate and chase the rally, which would provide the Alfred the opportunity to escape. Unfortunately, this plan didn't work and the two enemy ships made their way towards the Alfred. A few minutes later, the two ships surrounded the Alfred and started to fire at her furiously. The Alfred attempted to return fire for 10 intense minutes, but it was too much for her to handle. The Alfred lowered her colors and around 1300 she was boarded by a British crew and they took possession of the ship. But the British weren't done. Immediately after the Alfred was captured, they turned their attention towards the rally. Now with the superior force, they targeted Thompson as their new prize. Thompson wouldn't attempt to engage the British ships, and he altered his route to escape. All lumber and additional supplies were ordered to be thrown overboard to lighten the vessel. Thompson also ordered 35 tons of supplies shifted to the middle to improve sailing. This was enough for the rally to slowly make her escape. The chase lasted 19 hours, but the British eventually gave up on the rally and turned south towards the Alfred. Captain Hinman and his Marine officers, Captain John Welsh, 1st Lieutenant William Hamilton, and 2nd Lieutenant Nathaniel Richards, 
were removed from the Alfred, transferred to one of the British ships, and sent to Barbados as prisoners of war. Once in Barbados, every American officer, with the exception of Marine 2nd Lieutenant Richards, was relocated to the Yarmouth, where they sailed for England. On July 18th, the Americans were imprisoned in Fort in Prison in southern England. A week after their arrival, Captain Hinman was able to escape. However, the Marines would remain there for several more months. They would eventually break out of prison, travel to France, and make their way back to America. Back in Barbados, Marine Lieutenant Richards was only given parole because he knew the British officer of the Yarmouth. Richards reported, On our arrival at Barbados after capture, I was recognized by Captain Thompson of the British ship Yarmouth, who knew me when I was a child and was intimate in my father's family many years before. By his influence with Captain Pringle of the Ariadne, and by the intercession of Captain Hinman, I was permitted to return home on parole. Lieutenant Richards left Barbados and he arrived in New London, Connecticut on July 28th. The rally and Captain Thompson arrived in Boston in early April, but he wouldn't receive a warm welcome. He was heavily criticized for his lack of support for the Alfred. The doctor serving on the Alfred stood in front of the Navy board in Boston and gave a statement on the engagement and Captain Thompson's behavior. He stated that Captain Thompson was condemned by everyone, and they are requesting the board hang him for his actions. After hearing the doctor's testimony, the Marine Committee of Congress contacted the Eastern Navy Board and recommended Captain Thompson removed from the rally. They also had him suspended until an inquiry could be conducted regarding his conduct. Captain Thompson would have a chance to defend his case, but it wouldn't serve much good. Thompson was court-martialed for his actions and dismissed from service. Back in the States, the British were still moving forward with their new strategy of patrolling the coastline. Their goal was to take out any trade vessels attempting to leave North American waters. For over a year, Americans would try to eliminate the British blockade. And one of the first ships to take on this task was the Warren, a frigate in the Continental Navy and commanded by John Hopkins. The Warren was patiently standing by for months, and this idleness caused many of the original crew to leave. By the end of 1777, not one of the original enlisted or officers remained on the ship. Officers started to recruit for sailors and a marine to command the detachment on board the ship. A month after the search started, Congress found Elihu Trowbridge and commissioned him as captain of marines on board the Warren. Trowbridge was an experienced soldier, and he served under George Washington as one of his personal guards and as a second lieutenant under Colonel Charles Webb in the 2nd Connecticut Regiment. His experience in the Continental Army would be valuable for the Marines, and he started to recruit men to serve on board the Warren. The identity of Trowbridge's lieutenants isn't known, but he was able to recruit the required staff to man the ship. With a new crew, the Warren headed out into the Providence River and attempted to escape the British blockade. As the crew headed down the river, the British fleet waited by Newport. It was an especially dark night, and there was little wind as the Warren approached the British fleet. As the Warren flanked the enemy, Mother Nature gave a helping hand, and the wind picked up and drifted the ship away from the British. The enemy chased Hopkins and his crew for a little while, firing simultaneously at the lone American ship. The Warren was able to escape, 
but suffered some damage. Fortunately, no one was killed and only one man received minor injuries. Hopkins' original orders were to escape the British blockade and make his way to New London. However, plans changed once they were at sea. It was an icy winter and the men on board the ship did not have extra clothes for warmth on their journey. Instead of heading to Connecticut, Hopkins decided he would head towards warmer waters and sail towards Bermuda. Once there, they captured the Neptune. This ship was filled to the brim with salt and other dry goods. Hopkins removed 120 bales of duck and other supplies, which may have included clothing for his crew. They would capture another vessel headed towards Ireland not too long after the capture of the Neptune. The two new prizes were sent back to the States and headed towards Boston. She arrived on March 23rd and once again idly waited for months. As they were waiting, enlistment terms for the current Marines and sailors were expiring, and Captain Hopkins and Trowbridge had to start recruiting again. They were able to find enough men by the end of July, and the Warren prepared to set sail. The Marine Committee suggested Captain Hopkins sail towards New York and join the French fleet, under Admiral Destaw. Hopkins respectfully refused this suggestion and headed on his own adventure to seek out the Cork fleet. On September 5th, the Warren captured her first ship, the Thomas, which was filled with molasses. She would continue on her mission and capture multiple other ships before heading to Boston at the end of the year. The Warren wasn't the only ship to confront the British blockade. Captain Hoisted Hacker and the Columbus would attempt an escape, but they were confronted by the Maidstone and the Sphinx. Overpowered, Hacker breached the Columbus near Point Judith, Rhode Island. Sailors and Marines and local civilians would spend the night stripping the ship of all weapons, riggings, sails, and anything else of value. The British would successfully set the Columbus on fire the following night, despite musket fire from Americans on shore. The Providence would try to get through the British blockade next, and this time would be successful. The Virginia also made multiple attempts to get out to sea, but they weren't as lucky. By December, most of the sailors on board the Virginia resigned, deserted, or their enlistment expired. However, this didn't seem to apply to the Marines too much. The only Marine officer to resign was Captain James Disney, but he was replaced immediately by 2nd Lieutenant Thomas Plunkett. Captain of the Virginia, James Nicholson, decided to run against the enemy blockade on March 30th, despite the Maryland Council of Safety's recommendation to stay put. At 0800, Nicholson quickly left port and headed towards Annapolis, leaving behind 20 men in the process. The wind was not in their favor, and they had a difficult time progressing out to sea. She ended up hitting a shoal and losing her rudder in the process. Nicholson anchored the ship for repairs, but the British would spot the Americans and start heading towards their direction. Nicholson saw the approaching enemy and ordered his barge lowered and directed his oarmen to take him to shore. He abandoned his ship, leaving Naval Lieutenant Joshua Barney in charge. With the captain gone and a few sailors breaking into the ship's alcohol supply, it was nearly impossible to keep order. No one agreed on a solution, and the British slowly crept in and took possession of the ship the next day at 1000. Nicholson was able to reach the shore without any confrontation. He attempted to negotiate the release of his men and the return of his belongings he left on the ship but these efforts would be fruitless, and he received neither. 
His crew was split amongst the British squadron in the area. Captain Nicholson would later testify before a court of inquiry, but he was cleared for the loss of his ship. The British blockade was successful, and by summer, the squadron would have so many prisoners that the majority of them were sent to New York. The Effingham and the Washington didn't even have an opportunity to attempt an escape from the British blockade. General Washington suggested the two ships stripped of all valuable supplies and sunk to avoid capture by the British. The British launched an expedition in May, made up of 700 men. During this expedition, 40 ships were destroyed, which would be devastating for the Continental Fleet. Morale was low throughout the colonies, and members of the Marine Committee started to lose confidence. William Ellery, signer of the Declaration of Independence and representative of Rhode Island, wrote a letter to William Vernon stating, the enemy's ships do indeed swarm in the seas of America and Europe, but hitherto only one of our frigates hath been captured on the ocean. Two have been burned in the North River, two sunk in the Delaware, one captured there, and in Chesapeake. The Alfred, we are just informed, was taken on her passage home by two frigates in sight of the rally. He goes on to say, Our little fleet is very much thinned. We must contrive some plan for catching some of the enemy's frigates to supply our losses, but we must take care not to catch Tartars. We have been so unfortunate that I am apt to believe almost any bad news, but this report I cannot believe. The rally would join her sisters in the string of hardships for the Continental Navy and would confront two British ships on September 28th. The rally was taken into British control, and the crew who managed to escape traveled back to Boston. 1778 was a devastating year for America and the progress for independence. To compensate for the loss of ships, Congress authorized building and purchasing new ships to support the war against Britain. Of course they needed Marines for these ships, so recruitment began to find the sailors and Marines who would support these new vessels. A former British brigantine, captured on August 29, 1777, was renamed the General Gates. She was fitted with 18 guns and assigned Captain John Skimmer as her commander. There was also a 15-man Marine detachment on board, and they were led by Richard McClure. Before his assignment to the General Gates, McClure had previous experience as an artilleryman assigned to a regiment raised for the defense of Boston. On August 3, 1778, the General Gates captured another brigantine, the Montague, under Captain Nelson who defended his ship in a five-hour epic engagement. After using her ammunition, Montague resorted to firing, quote, every piece of iron of all kinds that could be rammed into the tube of the cannon, unquote. This included jackknives, crowbars, and even the captain's speaking tube. A double-headed shot from General Gates crashed into Captain Nelson's cabin. Nelson picked up the improvised ammunition, loaded it into his own cannons, and fired. The shot struck a swivel gun, split up, and part of it hit Captain Skimmer, instantly killing him. It was two more hours before Montague struck her colors and surrendered to the General Gates. On August 31, 1778, the General Gates returned to Boston Harbor with their prizes Polly and the Montague. The Continental Fleet also saw the addition of the Confederacy, the Alliance, the Dean, and the Queen of France. With the death and capture of Marines on board lost ships, enlistments expiring, 
the continuing problem with desertion, and the ongoing struggle with recruiting equated to a shortage of Marines. This deficiency left the Marines depleted, and there were detachments on only seven ships. The Boston, Warren, the Frigate Providence, Trumbull, Dean, Ranger, and the Sloop Providence. As recruiting started to ramp up, detachments of Marines were also included on the Alliance, Confederacy, and the General Gates. However, the numbers were still dropping. The conditions for Marines serving weren't the best, and they lacked the appropriate supplies. Despite the success of the Continental Fleet and the Marines, they struggled to find volunteers to serve. Although the majority of enlisted Marines served on board ships, there were detachments spread throughout the colonies whose mission was a little different than amphibious and naval warfare. In early 1778, a representative of the Continental Congress embarked on a series of raids which would be known as the Wheeling Expedition. Wheeling and a company of Marines would travel throughout the South and raid British property, which included the property of British loyalists. Before the American Revolution, James Wheeling came from a wealthy family, but he misspent his share of his inheritance through a self-indulgent lifestyle. He was in debt for about three to $4,000, and creditors did not have confidence that he would repay the amount owed. When news of the American Revolution reached Wheeling, he was one of the strongest supporters of the cause. Some argue his support for the American Revolution was to avoid his debt collectors, but Wheeling continued to serve the United States after the war until his death in 1801. The point of his raids was to stamp out the influence of British loyalists in the Natchez area of Mississippi. He was concerned that loyalists would close the Mississippi River to American ships carrying supplies. Records on how Wheeling presented this plan to the Commerce Committee of Congress doesn't exist. But whatever he pitched worked. The committee commissioned Wheeling as a captain in the Continental Navy. It's unclear if the decision to commission Wheeling was approved without the knowledge of Congress, but it seems like they were aware of what he was doing down south. A few years after the war, Wheeling mentioned his mission and support from Congress. Wheeling sent a letter to Oliver Pollock on May 30, 1778, that stated, After being ordered to make prize of all British property on the Mississippi River, I was instructed to apply to the governor of this province for liberty to make sale of them. I am again instructed to pay one share of the net proceeds into your hands as agent for the Congress. On a side note, I recommend looking into Oliver Pollock. He wasn't a Marine, but he undoubtedly contributed significantly to the success of the American Revolution. Pollock personally contributed hundreds of thousands of dollars to the cause. He racked up considerable debt and ended up going to debtor's prison despite his request to the Continental Congress for reimbursement or to forgive his debts. He is also credited with the accidental invention of the dollar sign. Captain Willing was given command of the gunboat Rattletrap and started to recruit for Marines. This assignment would be a welcome change to the men currently serving. Throughout the American Revolution, Marines and sailors experienced multiple hurry-up-and-wait scenarios. From patiently waiting in port to head out to sea, or cruising the coastline, service tended to be monotonous for some, which resulted in multiple desertions and men choosing not to re-enlist. This was a unique opportunity, because the volunteers were familiar with some of the targets, and they were within reach. 
Many men were aware of the loyalists in the area. There wasn't a struggle recruiting new men for the mission, and the competition was fierce. Multiple men volunteered for the service, including 20 men from the 13th Virginia Regiment and 14 men who were stationed in other regiments around Fort Pitt. Willing sent a list of items to General Han for his mission. Some of his requests included 3,000 pounds of beef, 100 gallons of whiskey, tomahawks, and 250 pounds of gunpowder. On January 10th, Willing and a group of Marines made their way down Ohio, and it didn't take long for them to start accumulating some fame. They were able to seize an oversized bateau of pelts and a large cargo of brandy from Mr. Lachance. Willing would continue through the south, but the British would notice his trek and started preparing for a possible attack. Thanks for listening. Join us next week as we dig a little further into Willing, the Marines, and the Rattletrap's adventure down south. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each episode, and take a look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share, and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening, and Semper Fi.